Let us pray together. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. One of the things I really like about the church calendar as a teaching tool is that it calls our attention to aspects of the Christian faith that we might otherwise ignore or overlook. Uh, for example, this is one reason why we have added an Ascension Day celebration, an Ascension Day service to uh, our calendar here at TPC. It's because the Ascension is all over the place in the New Testament. It's, it's absolutely crucial to the gospel but it almost never gets the attention it deserves. And so putting it there in the church calendar draws our attention to it in healthy ways. Uh, the same might be said of the Trinity and of Trinity Sunday. Uh, while the Trinity is certainly acknowledged in Christian churches, you can't be a Christian without being Trinitarian, uh, it really doesn't get that much attention. Uh, most Christians cannot explain what the Trinity is or why it matters that God is a Trinity. I was just talking to somebody the other day, and I mentioned that Trinity Sunday was coming up. He doesn't go to this church. He goes to another uh, church in town. He said, you know, I've never heard a sermon on the Trinity. And this is somebody who's been in church his whole life and never heard a sermon on the Trinity. Trinity Sunday uh, is, is important for that very reason. You can think of it as our annually scheduled checkup on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but I think that brings us to another interesting fact about this day, about Trinity Sunday. And I mentioned this in the announcements, but I want to reiterate it here. The rest of the church calendar celebrates events that have taken place in history. That's how Israel's calendar worked in the Old Covenant. Uh, festival days like Passover were meant to commemorate great deliverances that God had worked on their behalf in history. And that's how the church's calendar works too. Our special days are devoted to commemorating events in history. So Christmas, of course, celebrates the event of Christ's birth. Pentecost, for example, celebrates the event of the Spirit's coming, the Spirit's outpouring, and so forth. All of these days celebrate great events in history. But Trinity Sunday seems to focus on a doctrine rather than an event. We don't have a justification by faith Sunday or a providence Sunday or an election Sunday. We don't have days that focus on doctrines. They focus on events. So why do we have Trinity Sunday, a day that seems to focus on a doctrine? Well, in reality, Trinity Sunday celebrates all of those events found in the rest of the church calendar. It really gathers them up together and celebrates them all at once. The cumulative result of all of those historical events that we celebrate the rest of the year is the doctrine of the Trinity. This is how we come to know the Trinity is through these great events in history. The Trinity is revealed to us in the events we celebrate throughout the year. And so you can think of Trinity Sunday as a time to draw together what all of those other events reveal to us about God. So you've got events like Christmas and Easter that reveal that the Son has been sent by the Father to accomplish a mission. You've got Pentecost that reveals that the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son together. Trinity Sunday reminds us that all of those events taken together reveal who God is. 
All of those other events taken together reveal the inner life of God, the tri-unity of God. We come to know God as a trinity through these unfolding events in history. And so Trinity Sunday is a fitting summation of all the previous days and seasons of the church year. You've heard me say before, the church year tells a story. Well, here we are reminded the story the church calendar tells is the story of the Trinity. It's a Trinitarian story. It's the story of Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is because the story the Bible tells is the story of the Trinity. The story the whole Bible tells from beginning to end is a Trinitarian story. So what exactly is the Trinity? What do we mean by Trinity? And why does it matter? Trinity is not a biblical word, but it's a word Christians have used for centuries to summarize what we learn about God in the Scriptures. Uh, the word Trinity is just a synonym for God uh, in the Christian vocabulary. Uh, the word Trinity is a way of gathering together certain biblical truths. It's these truths taken together, these truths. There is one God, and this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God is eternally one, and God is eternally three. The Father is God, the Son is God begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is God proceeding from the Father through the Son. And so these three are God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet there are not three gods, there is one God. The fullness of the deity resides in each of these three persons. This is how one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, put it. He said, no sooner do I think of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish the three than I am carried back to the one. He said, I can't think about the one without moving to God's threeness. And I can't think about his threeness without moving back to his oneness. It's just how it is. Gregory goes on, he says this. He says, I cannot think of the Father's eternal love for the Son without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the Son's love for us in dying for us, nor can I discern the Son's love for us without straightway being carried back to the Father's love for the Son. For Gregory, as for all of the church fathers, the Trinity is one circle of love. One circle of life, one circle of light. These three persons sharing love and light and life from all eternity. Each person fully possessing all the divine attributes. Each person possessing the fullness of the deity. Three persons who, yes, can and must be distinguished as persons, but who cannot be separated from one another. And now, as Gregory hints at in this quotation I just read to you, we've somehow been brought into that circle of love and fellowship. Not that we've been made divine, of course, but that the same love the Father has for the Son and that the Son returns to the Father in the Spirit is a love that is now lavished upon us. Now, all of that sounds nice. Uh, it, it sounds fascinating. Uh, but what does it all mean? What does it mean for us? It is very easy to find the Trinity bewildering and to simply get frustrated over it. How can God be one and three at the same time? Isn't that a mathematical and logical impossibility? How can it be? 
And so, of course, throughout the history of the church, you've had some who have tried to solve this mystery. They've treated the, the, the Trinity like a math problem and tried to solve it, or like a logical puzzle, and they tried to solve it. And so some have said, well, perhaps this one God has three different roles, just like I, Rich Lusk, am a father and a son and a pastor. I've got those three roles that I play. So perhaps God can play the role of father, son, and spirit. He takes on these different personas at different times. But that's not the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, that's a heresy that became known as modalism in the early church. That view cannot do justice to the threeness that we find in Scripture. We find not just three roles, but three persons. Three persons who can interact with one another, who can love one another, who can speak to one another. In fact, sometimes in Scripture, we could eavesdrop on their conversations. Some of the Psalms, it actually turns out, are conversations between the Father and the Son, like Psalm 110. In John 17, the Gospel text I read this morning, you've got the Father speaking to the Son. And in other places in the Gospels, you've got the You've got the Son speaking to the Father, and then in other places you've got the Father speaking to the Son. You've got an inter-Trinitarian conversation, and we get to overhear it. It's not just three roles, it's truly three persons. Others have tried to solve the mystery of the Trinity by going in the other direction. Uh, they've said, maybe Father, Son, and Spirit are one the way that three business partners are one, or something like that. You know, three business partners can come together as one in a certain sense. They each have a human nature. They share a common human nature, so they're one in that way. And they can come together and form an agreement with each other, and they can share common goals and purposes for the business. And they can, uh, each of the three can work together, playing their part. The three together can form one business. Okay, maybe that's what the Trinity is like, some have said. But actually, no, that would be another heresy. That would be the heresy of tritheism. The Father, Son, and Spirit do all share the same divine nature and the same attributes. But we do not say that there are three gods. Uh, their oneness is not just found in a, voluntar in, a, in a voluntary coming together with common purposes and goals. They're not just tied together as partners in a joint venture. No, within the life of God, the three are truly and inseparably one. Their union is a union of being. So that the three persons share one divine life. They cannot exist apart from one another. God exists in relation, in communion of these three as one. They exist in and for one another as one God. So if you think about a business partnership, well, business partnership is completely voluntary. It's not necessary. In fact, it can be broken up. What you have in the Trinity is not three gods who decided to get together and work together as one. Three gods who came together and decided to be a Trinity. No, that's not the Trinity. What we say when we confess the Trinity is that God exists necessarily as one God. There is one God. The Trinity cannot be broken up. God is one. God exists as one God. The three are one. They are one in the deepest possible way. One in being. One in life. And so while there are certainly analogs to the Trinity in the creation, which I'll come to in just a bit, there are images or reflections of the Trinity within the world. 
There is nothing quite like the Trinity. There is no metaphor that captures the Trinity completely. We're always going to be left with mystery. There's something mystical about the Trinity. It goes beyond our comprehension. And so then there will be some Christians who say, well, the Trinity is mystical, and so therefore it can't be practical. Because it's mystical, it must not be practical. Because we can't fully understand it, it must not make any real difference. And that's why the Trinity ends up getting sidelined and ignored. But that would be a huge mistake. In fact, I'll tell you, I just I have a real disdain for those who take no interest in the practical implications of the truths that they confess. I spent just enough time in academia to have a real disdain for those who are only con- con- concerned with theory and not with the practice that's connected to it. And when I was in graduate school in philosophy, uh, I saw this happen all the time. I wanted to make T-shirts that had that saying, sure, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Because I felt like that's kind of what I was surrounded by. People who didn't care about the practice, they only cared about the theory. Yeah, that might work in practice, but does it work in theory? And there are some Christians who seem to treat the Trinity that way. Uh, who, who have this, this academic interest in it and not a practical interest in it. The reality is if the Trinity makes no difference, then there's no reason to believe it or teach it. If it makes no difference at all, if it has no practical implications, then yes, yeah, certainly sideline it. We can safely ignore it. But in reality, the Trinity makes all the difference in the world. Yes, it's a theoretical doctrine. It's abstract in a certain kind of way. We're contemplating and meditating on who God is, his oneness and his threeness. But this is also the most practical doctrine of them all. One of the ways in which it's practical is that it distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religious faith in the world. It distinguishes the Christian faith, the Christian religion, from every other philosophy or worldview or religion out there. It shows us the utter uniqueness of the Christian faith. The ancient pagan religions had many gods, but there was nothing that gave the gods unity, and so their societies were completely chaotic. Their societies were reflections of their deities who were always at war with one another. And so pagan societies were always at war themselves. Well-known religions today, like Judaism and Islam, are monotheistic, so they've got the oneness of God down, but they do not have a trinity. They do not have a plurality of persons within the one God. And so they inevitably become legalistic. Because if God wants something done, who's going to do it? We're the only ones who can do it. We as humans must provide what God demands. God can't provide it himself. That's what you get in the trinity with the Son providing what God demands, but you don't have a trinity. So if God demands something, we're the ones who've got to provide it. And so these religions are always legalistic. A monotheistic God cannot be a God of love. Who was there for him to love before the creation? He cannot be a God of grace because there's no one other than us to supply what he requires. The trinity makes the Christian faith totally and utterly unique. It distinguishes the Christian faith from all other faiths. We don't go around saying all religious people ultimately worship the same higher power because we don't. No other God compares to the Trinity. No other God is a Trinity. So practically speaking, the Trinity totally transforms the way we worship. 
And of course, you see this, you experience this Sunday after Sunday here. You can notice in our liturgy how it is completely saturated with the Trinity, with Trinitarian language. From the opening call in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit to the closing benediction. The Trinity is there in our confession of faith and the creeds that we recite, those historic Christian creeds, to the hymns that we sing, the prayers that we offer. It's all there. We sing the Trinity. We confess the Trinity. We pray in Trinitarian language. It's everywhere. Think about the way the Trinity makes a difference in how we pray. Christian prayer has a Trinitarian shape. The Trinity is what gives Christian prayer its structure. How do Christians pray? Well, ordinarily, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.18 puts it just this way. For through the Son, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's it. That's Christian prayer in a nutshell. Prayers to the Father. Because as Father, He is the fount of every good thing, the giver of every good gift. Prayer is in the name of the Son because the Son is the mediator, the only one through whom we as sinners can come before the Father. We come united to Him, joining our own prayers to His. And we pray by the Spirit, not in our own strength. And prayer would be simply a human work, a work of the flesh. No, we pray by the Spirit as the Spirit enables and empowers us to cry out, Abba, Father. And so prayer is not a work that we do, that we offer to God in our own name or our own strength. No, prayer is actually a way of participating in the ongoing interactions between Father, Son, and Spirit. Prayer is one of the gracious ways that God invites us into His own life, His own life of love. It's one of the ways God shows us grace. Christian prayer is shaped and structured by the Trinity. The Trinity, so far from, from being this impractical academic matter, is right at the heart of the Christian life. The most basic Christian practices are Trinitarian. You don't have to be some great theologian reading thick theology books in order to invoke the Trinity. All you have to do is pray like a Christian. We all do. We all pray in this Trinitarian way. We've been trained to do it as Christians. It's not just prayer and worship that are Trinitarian. The gospel is Trinitarian. The basic Christian message has a Trinitarian shape as well. If God is not a Trinity, there would be no gospel. The Trinity is the basis of the gospel. The gospel reveals the Trinity to us. The gospel is simply the Trinity in action. The story of the gospel is the story of the Trinity. It's the story of Father, Son, and Spirit working together as the one God to accomplish our redemption. The Father sending the Son and the Father and the Son together sending the Spirit. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of the Son offering Himself to the Father by the Spirit on the cross. That's the story of the gospel. The cross is the Trinity in action. It's a Trinitarian event. All three persons are involved in the work of the cross. God giving himself to God on our behalf and in our place. That's the gospel. That's the transaction that took place at the cross. It's this inter-Trinitarian dynamic, this inter-Trinitarian event. 
The gospel is simply God for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The gospel means God is for you. God is in your corner. All of God doing all that is necessary to save you from God's own wrath. To save you from all of your sins. That's the gospel. Father, Son, and Spirit bringing about our redemption and our recreation. You cannot preach the Gospel without proclaiming the Trinity. The Gospel is a proclamation of the Trinity. Or what about marriage? Marriage has a Trinitarian shape. There are some theologians who are so wary of reducing the Trinity to a means to an end. They don't want to turn the Trinity into a kind of social program. They're so concerned about this, they reject all social models based on the Trinity. They're willing to say, yeah, the Trinity does not have any implications for human life. They do not think human relationships can be based on inter-Trinitarian relationships in any way because God is so utterly unique. And so they'll say things like this. God says to us, be holy as I am holy, so we can imitate God's holiness. But God never says, be a Trinity as I am a Trinity. And so the Trinity cannot be imitated. But I think there's actually plenty of biblical evidence that God's inter-Trinitarian relationships are a model for human relationships and that God's inter-Trinitarian life shows us the way we should live since we are made in God's image. We are made in the image of the Trinity. And so we should live Trinity-like lives, lives that imitate and reflect the Trinity, to be godly is to be like God. It's to live as God lives. So how does God live? Well, we have to look at the Trinity and see. I think you find this from the very beginning in the Scriptures. In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. The work of creation is a Trinitarian work. The Father, Son, and Spirit are conversing together about the creation of man. Let us. Well, who's the us? Who's the our in our image? It's got to be Father, Son, and Spirit. From the very beginning you see this. God speaks in the plural about Himself from the opening page of the Bible. And He makes man in His image. His plurality in unity is to be reflected in the human race. Scripture does not start by revealing God in undifferentiated oneness and then later on add the Trinity into the picture. No, plurality in unity is there from the very beginning of God's revelation. Yes, it is progressively revealed more and more over time how God is three. But it's there from the very beginning of the Scriptures. And this has implications for how we understand human life and relationships. You know, there is something of a pandemic of loneliness in our culture. Loneliness is one of actually the greatest problems in our culture today. And, and loneliness is a problem precisely because it is dehumanizing. It's a massive and serious problem in our culture because to be lonely, to be socially isolated and dislocated is really subhuman. It dehumanizes you. In one sense, Americans like to think of themselves as more connected than ever because of social media. But in the ways that it really matters, we are lonelier and more isolated than ever. In fact, it's especially among the young who would be most connected 
in terms of social media. It's especially among the young that you see this loneliness bearing itself out. People are starving for deep and meaningful relationships. Why? Why do we crave relationships so much? Why do we need others in our lives? Well, the answer is found in the Trinity. We need relationship because we are made in the image of the relational God. The God who exists in relationship. And within the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is defined and distinguished by His relations to the others. Within the Trinity, each person is identified by how he relates to the others within the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is defined relationally. And so it is with us as humans. The way we find our identity, the way we figure out who we are, as it were, is in our relationships. We find ourselves and our identity in our relations. Let me give you an example of this. Marriage is certainly one preeminent defining relationship in human life, perhaps the defining human relationship, and marriage is most certainly Trinitarian in structure. Marriage has a Trinitarian shape. The Trinity helps to explain sexual differences between men and women. It helps explain what the sexual union in marriage really means. Marriage mirrors the Trinity. God designed marriage to reflect his own inner life. 1 Corinthians 11.3, there's a very interesting verse there. It's a hard chapter, so it gets overlooked. But in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul states that as God is the head of Christ, so man is the head of his wife. What is Paul saying? For Paul, the husband-wife relationship is in some sense analogous of the father-son relationship. It is in some way intended to picture the father-son relationship. Now, yes, he does say the God-Christ relationship, but who is Christ? Christ is God the Son incarnate. And so the relationship that God the Son as Christ, as the incarnate one has, with his father reveals something about the way the father and the son have related to one another from all eternity in God's triune life. And so the point here is when we look at that God to Christ relationship, that shows us what the husband to wife relationship is to look like. And so really you could say the Trinity is the key to male-female relations. In our culture we talk about a battle between the sexes, a battle that really goes all the way back to Genesis 3, to the fall, where Adam and Eve not only turned against God, they turned against each other. And that's really the beginning of the battle of the sexes. How is it resolved? How can you have peace between the sexes? The Trinity shows us the way. The Trinity is the key. God made marriage after the pattern of his own life. And so consider this. This is just one way how this works out, how the Trinity can help us. In the Trinity, the Father and the Son are equal in every way. They share the same authority and power and glory. They have all the same divine attributes. And yet, and yet, within the Trinity, there is a kind of hierarchy, a kind of ordering. And so the Father and Son have related as Father and Son from all eternity. With the Son in some way obeying His Father, submitting to His Father, and following the lead of His Father, not because He is inferior in any way, but as a gift of love to His Father. His Father has lavished love on Him, 
as a father, a, a paternal love. And the son returns a filial love to his father. The son submits to his father not because he is inferior, but simply because that is his role within the Trinity. It's a father-son relationship that has existed from all eternity. When we talk about the father eternally begetting the son, that's what we mean. There's never been a time when the father was without his son, and never been a time when the son was without his father. They've existed in this father-son relationship from all eternity. In a creaturely way, marriage is to picture that. Husbands and wives are complete equals. Complete equals. They share a common nature as image bearers. They have the same dignity, the same worth, the same value. But within the marriage relationship, they have different roles to play with a man as the head and leader and initiator and a wife as his helper and follower and completer. And in this way, they love one another. The man loving his wife in a husbandly kind of way. The wife loving her husband in a wifely kind of way. And in this way, a man and a woman become an interlocking one flesh whole. Their two lives become one life. The two become one flesh. And this loving oneness images the Trinity. It's not identical to the Trinity, no but it is a created analogy of the Trinity. It is a trace of the Trinity, a picture of the Trinity in a certain kind of creaturely way. And quite honestly, this is why Christians have such a high view of marriage, because marriage reflects the father-son relationship within the Trinity, even as it reflects the Christ-church relationship, as Paul points out in Ephesians 5. It's why Christians have such a high view of sex and believe that sex should be reserved for marriage. It's not because we're obsessed with puritanical rule-keeping. It's simply the recognition that sex is not just physical. It's spiritual, it's symbolic, it's mystical. The communion that a husband and wife share in some way reflects God's own communion, the communion of love that is the Trinity. In some way, it pictures God's own inner life. God designed sex for this purpose, to picture for us who he is in a certain way. Our culture is so deeply confused about sex, about sexuality. We don't know how men and women are supposed to relate. We don't even know what a man is anymore or what a woman is anymore. But again, the Trinity in so many ways is the clue. Again, just taking another way of how this works itself out. Feminists, I know there's a lot of different varieties of feminism, but feminists in general have wanted to say that men and women, once you move past certain superficial differences in biology, men and women are really exactly the same underneath. And so men and women are completely interchangeable. There are no real differences between them. And feminists say this because if there were differences between men and women, they believe that one would have to be better than the other. And so there can't be any differences. Men and women must be completely interchangeable, just different pieces that can be fit in. It doesn't matter, really. Uh, they're, they're completely interchangeable. But you know what? That view of men and women actually is a Trinitarian heresy. That's the heresy of modalism I already mentioned to you. Modalism said there's really no difference between the Father and the Son. They're just masks that the one God wears. Feminism, really, at root, is a Trinitarian heresy. It doesn't do justice to the distinction between the Father and the Son, the differences between them. So feminists have that problem. On the other hand, you've got chauvinists 
male chauvinists who will say, oh yeah, men and women are different, all right, and men are better. Okay, that's, that's been a common view throughout history. Men are better than women. You know, men and women are different, and women are less fully human than men. Men are superior. Okay? That's a Trinitarian heresy as well. That's the heresy we call Arianism, which says the Father is greater than the Son. The Son doesn't really share in the full deity of the Father. The woman doesn't share in the full humanity of man. And so Arians would say the Son is not worthy of the same honor as the Father. Chauvinist misogyny is really just a Trinitarian heresy. The Trinity helps us get this right because the Trinity holds together equality and hierarchy. In the Trinity, we see how there can be an equality of worth and yet a distinction of role. Within the Trinity, we can see these diverse roles within a unity of love and life, a diversity within the oneness. And so really the Trinity becomes the key to understanding the right relationship between the sexes. But marriage is not the only vestige of the Trinity in the world. The greatest image of the Trinity in the world, of course, is the church. The church is the greatest picture of the Trinity we have in the world. You know, I said we've got a loneliness problem, a loneliness epidemic in our culture, too many people experiencing social dislocation. Really, the church is, or at least ought to be, the answer to that loneliness because the church is simply human life recreated and restored to the image of the Trinity. The church is a community that pictures the Trinity. We talk about the communion of the saints. That communion of the saints is to be an earthly replica, an earthly picture of the communion of the divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There are vestiges of the Trinity or traces of the Trinity in the church's corporate life. This is what Jesus is praying for in the passage I read out of John 17. He's praying that the church would image the Trinity. And in his prayer, Jesus uses several key phrases to describe his relationship with his Father, which he then prays would become true of his disciples as well. He'll say, just as or even as. So as this is true of the Father-Son relationship, may it be true amongst my disciples as well. Jesus wants the Trinity imprinted upon the life of the church. How does the Trinity relate to the church? You know, growing up, uh, I, I had a friend that put it this way, and it's always stuck with me. Uh, he, he said, uh, this, this was the understanding of the Trinity. He had God the Father took care of Presbyterians, Jesus the Son was for the Baptists, and the Holy Spirit got stuck with the Pentecostals. And that's how he saw the Trinity relating to the church. Of course, that's not the case. That's kind of funny, but that, that's not true. In reality, the whole Trinity is for the whole church. The church is this unity in diversity community that is to be a, re a reflection of the Trinity's unity in diversity. And again, John 17 spreads all this out for us and shows us this. It spells it all out for us. In verse 20, Jesus prays, that his disciples may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And he repeats this in verse 23. I in you, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, in oneness. 
And so in Jesus' prayer, we see the Father and the Son are one. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And certainly that is a mystery. That is mysterious. I mean, reflect on that for just a moment. The Father in the Son, and the Son in the Father. How can something contain something else and be in that something else at the same time? See, when I go home today, I'll be able to say, I am in my house but I will not be able to say my house is in me. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be one or the other. In our experience, if you are inside something, that something is outside of you. But not so here. Jesus is talking about a different kind of relationship. He says the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Somehow it works in the Trinity. There can be this mutual indwelling. The Father has a house in the Son, and the Son has His house in the Father. So the Father can be in the Son at the same time the Son is in the Father. can't figure out how that works, but that's how Jesus describes it. But then, what did Jesus go on to pray? He prayed that His disciples would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Okay, I admit here, Jesus does not quite say be like the Trinity even as God is a Trinity. But that's really the essence of what he's praying for. That our oneness with one another would mimic and mirror God's own oneness as a Trinity. He's praying that we would become dwelling places for one another. That our unity would be modeled after the Father-Son unity. It's not just that God dwells in us and we dwell in God. I mean, that's certainly part of it. In fact, that's another one of these mysteries. Jesus prays, I in them and them in me. Or elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says, Christ in us. And he says, we are in Christ. Okay, so you get that same kind of spatial thing going on that just kind of blows our circuits. Okay, but it's more than that. God makes room in himself for us to dwell in him. At the very same time, God comes to dwell in us. But the prayer of Jesus in John 17 goes further. It's a prayer that we would somehow imitate what God has done, what God has done from all eternity and the Trinity and what God has done for us in our salvation. This is a prayer that we would make room in our hearts for one another. So I can dwell in you and you can dwell in me. Now how can I be inside of you at the same time you're inside of me? That's what we've got to figure out. That's the answer to Jesus' prayer when that happens. We're to make a home for one another in our hearts. And we're to find a home for ourselves in the hearts of others. We're to make a home in one another even as, that's really the key term in Jesus' prayer. Even as, okay, that's the key. Even as the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, so we are to be in one another. Jesus is praying that the church would be patterned after the Trinity. As above, so below. As in the Trinity, so in the church. God has made room for us in Himself. We're to make room for one another in ourselves. He wants our unity to be like the unity of his own triune life. He wants us to image the triune love, to imitate the triune love. Sharing lives leads to a shared life. See what I did there? I turned a plural into a singular. Okay. 
That's what the Trinity does. The, the plural and the singular go together. And that's how it must be in the church. Shared lives leads to a shared life. The church has many members living as one. As one body, as one community, as one fellowship, as one family. And so when we make room for one another, inviting others into our lives, into our homes, we are imitating God's own life. And we're answering Jesus' prayer. How about that? You get a chance to answer one of the prayers of Jesus by how you live your life. When you learn to share your life this way, you're answering the prayer of Jesus. Our many lives become one life. This is true in marriage. As I've already mentioned, this is what marriage is all about. Spouses making room for one another in their lives, in their hearts, in their home. It's what parenting is all about. Parents making room for children in their lives. Dwelling in their children even as their children dwell in them. It's what church life is all about. Making room for one another through service and hospitality. Making room for one another in our budgets and our calendars. So we can be there for one another. Really, this is what evangelism and mission is all about. Making room for the outsider. Making room for the stranger in our lives. As we speak the truth in love. As we do deeds of love that reflect the truth. See, the Trinity is both mystical and practical. Why? Because the Trinity is all about love. The love the Father and Son have for one another, the love the Father and the Son have for us, and the love we have for one another in the Father and in the Son. The Trinity is all about love, and there is nothing more practical than love. Let's pray together. Oh God, your life is a life of love, a life of glory, a life of joy. A love that overflows, that is spilled over into your creation. You created for the sake of love, not to shore up some need or to meet some deficiency. You created out of the overflowing abundance of your love and joy in yourself. Oh God, you are a never-ending circle of life, a never-ending circle of love. Oh God, your life is the true circle of life. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, giving to and receiving from one another, from all eternity to all eternity. And we thank you now, O triune God, that you have brought us into this circle of love and joy and life. O God, may your love and joy and life fill us. May we share in your joyous love now. May we share this joyous love with one another now and indeed forever. Amen.